I think if you look back on it, you know, we were just, we had so much confidence, but I think we also, the sign of a really good team and getting the most out of a team is we had an identity. And what I mean by that is every single player knew what we were trying to do on offense and defense. If you start on the defensive end, we had certain goals trying to keep teams, I think, under 60 points or 65 points. And we just got better and better at that throughout the year. And that was our defensive identity. No open shots. You're listening to Indiana basketball legend Tom Coverdale talking about the Indiana Hoosiers 2002 run to the NCAA title game. Tom talks about Indiana basketball, what it was like playing for Bob Knight and Mike Davis, and shares lessons on leadership and life in this episode of Michael Loves Indy. Hi, friends. Welcome back to Michael Loves Indy. March Madness is officially here in Indianapolis in a unique time in 2021 when Indianapolis and Central Indiana hosts the entire NCAA Men's Division I tournament. As I record this right now, they're playing second-round games. And uh, it's great. The weather's getting better. If you go to downtown Indianapolis, it's really booming. Got a lot of people visiting the city and uh, it's it's a really good time, especially if you're a sports fan. So I thought this week, what better timing to talk to one of the most beloved IU Hoosier basketball players, definitely of the last 30 years, but maybe of all time, Tom Coverdale. Um, Tom is someone that I know here in Indianapolis. He leads a large regional office of uh, AAA Hoosier Motor Club. He has for many years, so he runs. He has a big team. He's uh, a business leader here, involved in the community, and just someone who's uh, incredibly kind and approachable. And it just so happens that the day that I scheduled this conversation to talk with Tom, Indiana University announced that it had fired basketball coach Archie Miller, triggering all kinds of speculation about who the next head coach would be. So I really enjoyed this conversation with Tom. I wanted to talk to him about, particularly about the 2001-2002 team that made the deep run in the NCAA tournament. That would have been Mike Davis's second year as head coach. But I wanted to talk to Tom just about Indiana basketball in general and what that was like. And um, we also talk about lessons in leadership and life that Tom has drawn from his basketball experience because he did spend several years as a coach before deciding to pursue a business career. But he has a lot of wisdom that he shares in this conversation. And um, I, I was too curious. We do early on in the discussion, I asked him to talk about who he thinks would be an ideal head coach, next head coach of Indiana University men's basketball. And he does share. He's got he's got some uh, some ideas that he shares there. So anyway, I hope you really enjoy this conversation with one of the greatest high school basketball players in Indiana history and one of the most beloved IU basketball players of all time, Tom Coverdale. Um, as, as we sit here and record this, it was just announced yesterday, obviously, that uh, Archie is moving on from uh, Indiana University, and I'm imagining everybody calling you, um, asking you about your interest in being the next IU coach. Oh, not me, <laughs> not being in basketball, but definitely uh, getting a lot of texts on who yeah. you know I want to see become the next head coach. 
Um, you know, obviously I want a former player just cause I think it's been, you know, it's been a while yep. and, it, and it's so far removed from any real success that I think we do need to, um, get a former player back in there. That's been in the culture when it's a really a big winning culture. Yeah. Um, you know, I think one name that a lot of people don't talk a lot about that I think would do a fantastic job is Michael Lewis, who he hasn't been a head coach, but he's had so much success as an assistant coach. He's the top assistant coach at UCLA who's yep. in the tournament this year. Um, and then, you know, I was, I was in college coaching for, uh, six years before I moved home and just got into the business world, but uh, ran into so many former players and so many former coaches that have talked about him and just the amount of respect that players have that have played for him. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I'm at this point where I don't care if it's a guy that's been a head coach or not. I, I, I want to get a guy in there that's going to have a ton of energy that's been in the program that can, uh, kind of jumpstart it because, you know, not making the tournament as many times as we have. I mean, can it really, uh, do we really need to have success right away? If that makes sense, let's get somebody yeah. that's going to get in and build the culture and build, you know, build the team the right way. Um, and I think Mike could do that. That's a good name. Cause I know like right now in the media, they're throwing around, you know, big, big names. I saw the star wrote uh, star columnist, Greg Doyle was like Brad Stevens and, you know, Tony Bennett and John Beeline. But it is, it is kind of fun to look back. I've seen Michael Lewis. I've seen, um, Calbert Chaney, who I know is a friend of yours and you're a big fan of, um, and some others, the, you know, former IU players who have had success coaching. Yeah, and I, I really think, you know, you got Calbert, you got obviously Dane Fife out there, um, but and then obviously Steve Alford. I think any of those four would do a great job, but it's just a matter of um, who uh, Scott Dolson wants and, and who he's seen. And obviously, you know, if you can get a Brad Stevens or someone like that, you're going to do it. But I just think it's a hard – it's going to be hard for him, especially with the timing to leave a – NBA coaching job when he just got an extension right in the middle of the season. So I don't know how that would play out. Yeah. Um, especially when he left college to get into that situation. But if you can't get a big name like a Brad Stevens, and that's really the one I would want besides going to the other four. Yeah. Well, we'll see what happens in the next few weeks. And then, you know, Indianapolis obviously hosting the tournament. So it's kind of college basketball fever right now, as you know. And again, I'm so appreciative of you taking the time. You're definitely one of the most beloved IU players. Um, and I've only, and I see, I grew up, as you know, I grew up in Southern Illinois. So half my family went to Illinois and I went to Northwestern, but having kind of a fascination with Indiana because it's just, it is different here. And I knew it was different here growing up in Illinois. And it's been great to be here for 20 years. And I don't know, I'm sure you hear this all the time, but it's like, I think one of the reasons that you are so as beloved as you are is, I mean, in addition to just the, you know, kind of the hustle and everything that you stand for, it's like, you're not seven feet tall, you know, you're not an Olympic sprinter. And I think a lot of people, you know, watching and a lot of kids watching are like, okay, I, I think I could do that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, exactly. And I, I think that... <clears throat> I think I grew up just the same as everyone else in the state, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I was only six, two. I dreamed about playing at Indiana. 
basically said, if you, if you offer me a scholarship, I'm coming, I'm shutting down the whole recruiting process. Wasn't a really highly recruited person anyway, but just wanted to be at Indiana and obviously took it to heart and had so much pride to be able to wear that Jersey. And I, I think that's the most frustrating thing with kids today is they take for granted the opportunity that they have right in front of them, whether it's, you know, not, you know, I, I'm not saying kids today don't play hard, but you know, that there's been certain stretches where you feel like the Indiana team's not playing as hard as they can, or they just kind of have this non-energetic or non-enthusiastic attitude on the court, which that's what Indiana fans love. You know right. what I mean? They, they want the kids and the, and the players to act like and, and show that they care as much as the fan base does, because it is a fantastic fan base that, loves this team. And, um, I think that's why, you know, a former player can help get it back there because they understand that they understand the fan base and how great of a fan base it is. And, and just imagine the opportunity that the next coach and the next round of players have. I mean, that's the way they got to look at it. If, if Indiana starts winning again and winning in a big way where you're consistently ranked in the top 20, um, you know, I, I remember when we were coming through, you know, getting a four or a five seed. I mean, going into the tournament my senior year, we were disappointed and almost embarrassed that we had a really good start to the year and ended up getting a seven seed in the NCAA tournament. So now to come to where we are now, I, I just want to get back to that. But if we do get back to that, we have a fan base in a state that loves basketball and loves this university so much that it's going to be a frenzy like it was back 20 to 25 years ago. Oh, and yeah. I think that's a, that's a great opportunity for kids to come and understand that. Absolutely. Well, I, um, I don't want to, I, I do want people who are listening to this to know you did such a great interview and it sounded like you really enjoyed it with your buddy, AJ Guyton, a couple of months ago on the House of Hoosier podcast. And I'm not going to repeat a lot of the stuff that you talked about there. Highly recommend people to check that out, especially if you love Big Ten basketball. But I do want to mention um, and ask you to talk a little bit about growing up in Noblesville, Indiana, because, you know, you're a humble guy. You're saying uh, maybe you, you weren't recruited widely, but you were in Indiana, Mr. Basketball. And you look at the names of the luminaries who have, uh, you know, had that honor over the over the decades, and, and you're on a very uh, impressive list. And I know that you credit a lot your two older brothers for really, um, you know, uh, causing, you know, um, you know, you're a fighter because you were constantly, you know, looking up at them and, and, and things like that. Um, do, do you think that, I mean, is that really your biggest influence in terms of the kind of the fight, um, with you as a young player? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think I had fantastic coaching for one growing up. Um, but also my brothers who were five and seven years older than me, whenever you're a little kid and wanting to play with your brothers and then that much older than me, um, you can't help to get better when, when they're just obviously a lot taller and more athletic at that point when, you know, I'm five years old and they're, you know, 10 and 12. So, um, you know, that had a really big part to do with it. Of course, my mom making them let me play with them was a big deal. Um, but then also another thing, like I said, my coaching, so growing up, my dad and and really my uncle, you know, Steve Coverdale coached me a lot through high school or or before I got to high school, um, which really pushed me to, 
to be the best I could be. But then if you think about my two coaches from that point on before I got to high school was Dave McCullough, who's going to be a Hall of Fame coach, just got a 600th win in high school. Um, and then my AAU summer coach, which I think this is the biggest difference uh, in kids today in summer basketball, uh, my AAU summer coach is J.R. Holmes, who's the all-time winningest coach in high school basketball, who's at Bloomington South. So I played with his son um, and, and just a, a collection of kids throughout the state. So whenever you have two Hall of Fame high school basketball coaches coaching you year-round, once you get to the high school level, uh, you can't can't le- help but learn the right way to play the game. Um, and, and I think both of those guys really and coaches instilled just that um, tenacity and, and fear of failure, really, uh, to not try to be as successful as you can be and really never to take any possession or day off when it comes to basketball. Um, so you, obviously my childhood in Noblesville had something to do with that, a big basketball town. My brothers prepared me, but those those two high school coaches, along with the way I grew up, I would say is a big reason for my high school success. I thought something else I picked up from your, uh, from your story that I thought was pretty cool, you know, in, uh, in 2020 and 2021, we're talking a lot about everywhere about racial equity and diversity and those kinds of things. And I thought it was pretty cool that your dad from a young age really wanted you to not only, um, compete because Noblesville at the time being a more homogenous community. I know Hamilton County has become much more diverse now as we sit here in 2021, but, but he wanted you to, he would take you to downtown Indianapolis places like municipal gardens because he wanted you to have experience playing against black players, but also forming friendships with black players and black coaches. Is that accurate? Yeah, no question. I mean, you know, like you said, in the mid nineties, Hamilton County wasn't as diverse as as it is now. And, you know, when you get into high school and college, I mean, you know, it, it's a, at least, you know, 75%, you know, black players. So to be able to go downtown and play in municipal gardens against players, you know, like Jason Gardner and, you know, Rodney Smith, Isaac Kincaid, different players that were just known throughout the state and a different type of athlete, just their height, their speed, and just getting used to playing against that from a mental standpoint, knowing you can play against the best athletes in the state, but also, like you said, becoming friends with them and kind of getting outside of the bubble that so many of us can live in when we're growing up really took me far as far as a, a confidence level, but then opening your eyes as a big kid, as a young kid, um, to, uh, that I think really prepared me for college. Yeah. And, you know, both in uh, high school basketball and AAU, um, I think I, I didn't appreciate growing up in Illinois until I got here. You know, the state of Indiana still produces a disproportionately high number of Division One players. And for a long time, and I suspect this is still true, had per capita the highest number of NBA players hailing from Indiana. And I was looking at some of the people that you were going up against in high school and just the ones that popped out. You mentioned Jason Gardner went to Arizona. Chris Thomas started at Notre Dame and many, and, and many, many others. It's almost like, I mean – you know, especially as you get into playoff basketball, you're going up against Division One talent literally every game. Is that right? Yeah, especially in central Indiana around that time. I mean, we had so many different, like, good players that were all in the same sectional. And, and 
you know, I'll never forget that just, just growing up and, and being in that type of atmosphere. And this was before class basketball. So, um, you know, you had the Carmel, the Abernathy twins who were both six, eight that played D one. Um, and then, like you said, Chris Thomas, who was a freshman, won Mr. Basketball, Jason Gardner also won Mr. Basketball. So the amount of talent in the state of Indiana, and then not to mention that summer basketball, my AAU team, um, you know, we had three kids that started out going to Evansville. Uh, one went to North Carolina. Um, another kid, Justin Payne, who was a, a really, really good Division II player. So um, you, you had so many, so much talent throughout the state and getting to practice against that day in, day out, and travel and play with those type of players is, is an experience that can only make you better. What do you attribute your kind of drive to get better to at that time? Because you and I both know a lot of people in their field, you know, could be athletics, could be something else. At some point they kind of plateau. And as you look at your high school career, college career, it's a theme of steady growth. And was it, was it just that, you know, going up against guys and wanting to get the better of them or what, like what's going through your mind as you continually progressed uh, specifically in your high school years? Uh, I think my, my high school coach had the most to do with that and, and a great story about him and how good of a coach he was. Um, I'll never forget. I think I was a, it was the beginning of my junior year and we go to practice and I, you know, I had started almost every game since my freshman year, except for the first couple of my freshman year. So we get all the way to my junior year and I'm not in the starting lineup. Um, and I hadn't, I didn't think I had done anything wrong, you know, so I, I didn't even talk to him that night. I was just on the second team in practice. And obviously my dad, um, parents have changed a lot when you hear this story as well. But I went home and I told my dad, I was like, I don't think I'm starting tomorrow. And his first reaction, well, what did you do wrong? Not it's what's the coach thinking? What's this? It's what did you do wrong? And I said, I have no idea. He said, well, you better go talk to coach about it. He's got a reason, obviously. So I went to him the next day and I said, am I starting tonight, coach? You know, and it was just the two of us and he said, no, you're not. And the reason why is, you know, you're averaging 22 points a game right now and you should be averaging 25 to 26 and I'm sick of it. And as a, you know, a 16 or 17 year old kid, you don't really get what he's trying to say until you look back on it. But then he went on to explain, he said, you know, Tom, you dominate a game for two possessions at a time instead of five or six, you know, you'll, you'll, play really well for two possessions and then you'll take three possessions off and then you'll play good for three possessions and take three off. And he goes, and until you learn to play every single possession hard and have that urgency that every single possession on both ends of the floor means something, you're not going to start again. So I, I went into that game. I didn't start. I obviously, I, I didn't have a good game just dealing with all that mentally as a young kid, but he saw the bigger picture in me and, and the potential I had and how I could be a, a high division one player. And really, even when I got into college, just having that fear of taking a possession off and not doing everything you can mentally and physically and effort wise 
has really carried into my life and, and, and I'll be forever grateful that coach McCullough did that to me when I was a, a junior in high school. Wow. Um, when you, when you got, uh, Mr. Basketball, do you remember what, what that was like, what was going through your mind? Yeah. I mean, it was just an amazing feeling. I was on spring break in Florida, but I was with a bunch of my friends and then we came home and got to spend it with my family, coach McCullough, teammates and all that. But just, you know, when, when you're in high school and playing summer basketball, I mean, you're playing 12 months out of the year and just knowing how much I had practiced and worked and never thought in a million years that dream could come true. I I knew I wanted to play for the high school team at Noblesville. I knew if I kept getting better, I could play division one. Um, but if you would have told me my freshman year, I was going to play at IU and win Mr. Basketball, I probably wouldn't have believed you, but just to have all that come true, uh, being the biggest Indiana basketball fan from a high school standpoint, even growing up and going to all those games was just, just a memory that you're grateful for. And, um, definitely, you know, very humble to be in the same, you know, mentioned with all the other Mr. Basketballs that there's been throughout the years. And so as, as I sit here and Indianapolis is hosting the entire tournament and now, you know, IU is, is uh, the IU uh, search for a new head coach has begun. As I was doing the research, Tom, I think you're the officially the youngest person to play for Bob Knight at Indiana University. And if not, you're close. Does that sound right? I, I have never heard that before, so I, I, I think have no you, I, I think you are because you you know you you get recruited, and I guess where I'm going with this is, without again without going into the whole story because AJ does such a good job, you know, and you guys both played for Knight, but the 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 story of your recruitment of Knight is 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 great, and I do th- I do I did have to laugh, you know, you're Indiana, Mr. Basketball, you could have gone to a lot of places, and you pretty much voluntarily just, you know, give up your leverage early on and say, like you said in the beginning of this this uh, conversation, you know, you've I've always wanted to go to Indiana, and and Knight knew that, but can you tell um, can you tell at least part of the story of uh, your recruitment by Coach Knight to go to Indiana? Yeah, I mean, they really they invited me down for the first time when I was a sophomore in high school. Um, and you know, I'll never forget meeting him for the first time. Uh, me and my whole family really grew up huge Indiana fans. And so me and my parents are sitting there with coach Knight after the game. And he said, you know, do you, do you think you want to come here? And I said, yeah, I think so. And, uh, he basically just said, you think so? I'm not going to beg you to come here. Do you want to come here or not? And I was like, yes, sir. You know? So basically that's how I first met him. And then, I basically just looked at him at that point and I said, coach, look, I've always dreamed of coming here. Um, if you offer me a scholarship today, tomorrow, next year, I'm coming and, and my recruitment's over. Um, I'm ready when you are. And he just, at that time, basically just said, you know, you keep getting better and you're going to have a chance to either play here or somewhere, um, you know, a, a really great program. So they didn't offer me a scholarship until, the summer going into my senior year. But I, I do think that really helped me because it came down to me and a couple other kids in the state, I think, that they were deciding from and probably looked at us all equally. But, you know, they said, you know, let's take the kid that's dying to come here and wants to be here 
over the kids that are, you know, still contemplating other options. And I think that ended up helping me just being that up front and forward with that. I uh, wanted to be there at Indiana. And so what, um, what are your memories about arriving on campus and then the reality of, okay, here's coach Knight and this is what he expects. And now, you know, now I'm in it. Uh, the earliest thing I remember is just, you know, I, I struggled my first year, just any, anytime you go up in a level, especially from high school. And then I went to that prep school out East for a year and then came into there and you're looking at people like AJ Guyton, who's a senior and an all American and Michael Lewis, who's the all time assist leader at the time of, uh, at Indiana. Um, and then another, you know, you had another senior guard in Luke Jimenez. So you had three guys on the team that were all senior guards and been there four years. So the amount of experience they had, I was just trying to soak it all up. And, and I knew offensively I was competing very well in practice, but in all honesty, defensively, I couldn't guard a soul. And it just continually got better and better through my freshman year, just it's hard not to when you guard AJ and Mike Lewis every single day uh, with all the experience they had. And, and I knew after my freshman year, it was more, you know, going back to coach McCall is just a fear of failure. I, I knew that summer I had to work harder than I ever had my whole life to be able to play. Um, and the opportunity was going to be there with all the guards leaving. So I kind of just took that adversity and, and went with it that, you know, it's now or never. Um, unfortunately, he got fired before my sophomore year, but all that work uh, that summer paid off because I ended up starting as a sophomore and kind of really just um, took off from there in college. The The progression from your freshman year to your sophomore year is something that I had forgotten about that really jumps out at you when I was doing the doing. Uh, the research and looking back at box scores and things like that. But I do want to ask you, because um, I think this is a this is an instructive lesson for those of us who go through adversity or maybe we get into a situation, maybe, you know, a working situation that we um, that we didn't expect, you know, so it's you did your year of prep school to get ready, come back to Indiana. And obviously, as you said, um, there's some depth at the guard position. So you didn't play much your freshman year, but you're poised to then take what would become this starting spot and then Bob Knight gets fired. What, like, what, what's, what's happening in kind of inside the team conversations? What, what was that like? Well, for me, it was frustrating because I had dreamed about playing for him my whole life, you know, and we had already started preseason workouts and I was doing really well. And he had actually brought me in the office and said, Tom, you keep playing like this. You're going to be in our rotation. You're going to, have a chance to have a great year, just keep doing what you're doing and getting better. And then literally two or three weeks later, he gets fired. So for me, it was just an uncertainty of, you know, who's going to be the coach? What am I going to do? Um, how many kids, how many of my teammates are going to leave? I knew I was never leaving just for, for two reasons. One, you know, I dreamed of playing there. I had worked so hard, so I was right on the cusp of being in the rotation and playing after sitting for a whole year. And number two, in all honesty, where where was I going to go? <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I played 40 minutes my whole freshman year, so if I was going to transfer, it would have been to probably a mid-major or something like that, and I, I definitely was not going to do that when I had worked so hard to get to Indiana. But uh, it, it – 
we're lucky that it all came the way it did, you know, for them to hire Mike Davis and coach tree Lord, really for both of them to stay on is what really kept the whole team together. Um, and allowed us to, to make the run we did the year after that. And I feel like, I feel like Mike Davis is kind of misunderstood by a lot of people. I mean that, you know, like you said, the way the team rallied behind him, um, is there, is there something about him? This might be a loaded question, but is there something about Coach Davis that you think a lot of people don't fully appreciate that maybe doesn't come across on the, you know, when they're watching TV? Yeah, I think two things. You know, it was the perfect balance between, and, and I think Coach Trelor doesn't get enough credit, and I'll get to that in a second. But when Coach Davis, he was a brilliant offensive mind. And what I mean by that is he knew we had a team that could obtain and and retain a ton of set plays. So, yeah, we had a regular offense where we were throwing it into Jeffries and kind of getting going through that. But, I mean, we had 60 to 70 set plays that we knew inside and out, and he would just sit and practice, and we would go and do different play after different play going against the defense that he just came up with off the fly on the sideline. And what worked, we kept, and what didn't, we just kind of moved on. Um, that, and then just, he, he had a great relationship with players, but he also was not afraid to get on any player on the court. And, and I think that's important from a discipline standpoint to where, you know, it was similar to coach Knight, not the same, obviously, as far as how he held us accountable and how, uh, hard we had to work in the expectation of work ethic. Um, but also you could build a relationship and relate to him off the floor. And then, you know, so he had the offense basically taken care of. And then Coach Trelor was just a brilliant defensive mind, and he really just ran our defense. And that was the, the other half that made us very successful. So we had a lot of high IQ basketball guys, um, and you add that to with, you know, Coach Davis's kind of NBA set, set play style. Uh, it put us in a lot of great situations to be successful with what our skill set was. Well, that's that's really good background because I think again I I I I think I'm kind of a Mike Davis apologist. Um, but um, then then you come into your sophomore year, you're starting. As I recall, there's an early game maybe against Notre Dame, um, where you have a breakout game. Is that right? Am I remembering that right? Yeah, your sophomore year, yeah. and and uh, and I, but to see that level of progression, I mean, here's a guy like you said who you know um, played 40 minutes your freshman year. Now you're sophomore on a ranked team, and you know scoring 30 points. Um, what you know what 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 accounts for that kind of jump? I, I think you just have to have confidence in yourself. And like I said, even my freshman year, I had certain practices where I, I scored really well. So I knew I could score at the Division One level, not, not 30 points or anything. I wasn't expecting that. But just to have that confidence going into a game and, and, you, and then, you know, you keep getting better and better. And then it, when you become a starter um, – you know, and I told AJ this, this was really the first game um, that felt like high school. And what I mean by that is the game just kind of slows down and and you're getting open like you did in high school. You're getting past people off the dribble like you did in high school. 
And for me, that's just what took my confidence to the next level. Cause you know, we were playing a Notre Dame team that I think they were ranked in the top 10 and a really good team. So just to have that kind of success and, and then, a, you know, teammates and a coaching staff that's behind you and just feeding you the ball because they know you're hot gives you even more confidence in yourself. And I think that was a, just a combination of everything I'd worked towards that, towards getting to that point. Um, and, and, and obviously that, that team, that's a year before the team that went to the finals and uh, Kirk Haston, who uh, left a year early to go to the NBA, Jared Jeffries, yourself were the leading scorers on that team. But then this, I, this, this goes for the 2000, um, 2001 team. And then the next year's team looking back, I, and I, I, I didn't really, I didn't fully appreciate it at the time. It almost feels like it was almost a perfect assembly of supportive, uh, complementary parts. You know what I mean? I mean, it's like I, every, you go down the, you go down the roster and everybody does different things. Um, there's no, there are no two players that are very much alike. Does that make sense? Yeah, I agree with that a hundred percent. I mean, you got obviously stars with like people like Jared Jeffries and Kirk Haston the year before who were both all Americans, but then you have really good shooters around them, uh, which is obviously what Indiana's missing these days. But you got people like Kyle Hornsby and Dane Fife and myself where, you know, especially Hornsby, every time he had an open look, you felt like it was going in. Um, but then you add in a guy like Jared Odell who knew his role was a incredible rebounder was always in the right position defensively. And then you have three guys coming off the bench who I think Jeff Newton and George Leach are number one and number two all time in block shots at Indiana. So you have that and AJ Moye coming off the bench. Who's just, you know, energy the whole time that can give you a spark if you, uh, if you need it, just, we complimented each other so well. And I think, you know, the, the thing I'll remember the most about that team is just we all got along. You know, everybody wanted each other to succeed. We were really unselfish. We didn't really care who got the credit. It was just – it was one of the best teams, you know, probably the best team I've ever been a part of as far as the culture and just wanting to win and not care who got the credit. I thought it was pretty cool. Um, you know, the 2000-2001 the team – if it was, you know, if it was a video game, you might think, well, that team would be a little better, especially with Haston and his scoring ability. The 2002 team is the one that, um, you know, beats Duke, beats an absolutely loaded Duke team, and and makes it to uh, the championship game. And I want, I'd like to ask you about the progression of that that season because the team went 11 and five in the Big Ten. Uh, so certainly, certainly did um, really well. But there, there are a couple, there are a couple of turning points in that season, right? I mean, because that was that was a, a grueling, a grueling year for that team, even before they got into the tournament that everybody talks about. Yeah, no question. And, and the biggest thing I'll always remember about that season is going into it. I think Indiana had been to, I want to say twenty-one or twenty-two straight NCAA tournaments. Um, and we started that year in the non-conference. Um, it was really up and down. We were seven and five, and we had just lost to Butler, um, which I believe that Butler team was the one that really got it all started for Butler. They had a really, really good team with Darnell Archie and uh, Brandon Miller, players like that, Ryland Hange, who was really good. So, but lost to a good team, but you know 
being seven and five and going back and getting ready to start the Big Ten season, we were all talking and getting together like, look, if we don't turn it around, we're going to be the first team to not make the tournament in over 22 years. And we just had gone through so much with Coach Knight getting fired and then Kirk Haston leaving. And we basically had the whole team back besides that. And we just another one of those forks in the road where you can go either way. But we really came together. And once Big Ten season started, uh, we started playing our best basketball and still ended up winning a share of the Big Ten title. But a lot of people don't remember that we were we were in jeopardy. And I take it back to having that fear of failure. You know, everybody kind of came together and just said, this is not going to happen to this team. So uh, we, we ended up going in a different direction and making, a, making the run that we did. And um, uh, what do you think the, the – well, here, here's a, here's a question. Um, that team is remembered for really tenacious defense um, and effort, and uh, you know, and and yet you've got to play. You've got to get up for a Wisconsin team. You know, you play them twice. You've got to get up for Tom Izzo in Michigan State and things like that. What are are there things about going through that Big Ten season that wouldn't be obvious to the fan? You know, just just because every you know, as I'm looking at that, who was in the Big Ten that year? You know, you had a you had a an Iowa team that was ranked in the top ten for most of the early season. They end up five and eleven, you know, in the in the Big Ten that year, and yet they were they were really good on paper. Uh, what, what you know, what's just are there things that wouldn't be obvious to the the fan about just going through that type of a season? I think if you look back on it, you know, we were just we had so much confidence, but I think we also the sign of a really good team and getting the most out of a team is we had an identity. And what I mean by that is every single player knew what we were trying to do on offense and defense. So if you start on the defensive end, we had certain goals trying to keep teams, I think under 60 points or 65 points. And we knew if, if we were trying to give up zero uncontested shots. So every single time the other team was, taking a shot we had a hand in their face so there was no and to be able to do that your rotations have to be right you have to be in the right place at all times to to make it that hard on a team and we just got better and better at that throughout the year and that was our defensive identity no open shots and everybody rotate as one with five people on the floor and then offensively it's kind of vice versa this sounds simple but that team hardly ever took any bad shots. I mean, my my probably I was the worst one as far as when I hit a couple shots to just throw one up. But overall, we knew our identity was throwing it into Jeffries, and we were going to see what they were going to do. If if they didn't double team, we knew he could go one on one against anybody in the country at his position. And if they did double team, our shooters were going to be ready, and we were going to do you know hit open shots. Um, but really just taking good shots every single time down. Uh, we knew we weren't going to be more talented than a lot of the teams we played, but we were going to be a better team just by, you know, not making mistakes ourselves. We really tried to cut down on turnovers, get a good shot every single time down, and then obviously no open shots. And those were the three keys that we really honed in on that made us so successful. And I was, I was remembering, you mentioned Jeff Newton and George Leach, obviously two all-time great defensive players. And then Dane Fife, uh, you know, obviously, a, and Tom Izzo assistant today. 
Dane just strikes me as the kind of person that like on the playground, you never want to have guarding you because he's just, he's just going to annoy you. You know what I mean? Is that, is that an accurate uh, depiction? Yeah. I mean, obviously he, (laughs) I think he got in three different fist fights with teammates in the summertime just from, from doing that. But you know, that's, that's the kind of guy you want on your team. You, when you have a guy like that, that you know can just go out and guard the other team's best player and you don't have to worry about that guy having a career game. That's another added weapon uh, that you have. And Dane just, he wasn't the fastest guy in the world, most athletic, but he just had a tenaciousness. He understood angles and he just kept his person in front of him all the time. And he was, he was, uh, that's why he was one of the top defensive players in the big 10. That was really the anchor of our defense. Do you remember your mentality as you approached the, uh, the 2002 NCAA tournament, uh, because I, I, I mean, I want to ask you about the Duke game, but I don't want to skip, you know, I don't want to jump the gun because you beat a good, you know, good Utah team and a good, um, North Carolina Wilmington, uh, team that had an upset win in the first round. But I, I think I, I think I'd like to ask, do you remember what the team's mentality was heading because this is this would be your second year with coach Davis obviously the year before you had a good regular season but there was a disappointing loss to Kent State so this is I guess what your second full year with coach Mike Davis um do you remember what you were thinking heading into the the uh, NCAA tournament yeah I remember exactly it was we've got to win at least one game (laughs) because the the couple years before that like you said we we I don't think Indiana had won a first round game in four or five years. And a lot of people don't even remember this. The year before my sophomore year, we were a four seed. And then the year we went into the tournament and got upset by Kent state. And then the, this year we were a five seed. So we knew we were playing really well at the right time. And we just wanted to get over that first hump. And obviously, you know, everybody talks about the 12, five upset. And everybody was picking Utah to beat us just because we hadn't won a first-round game in several years. Uh, but once we got that first one under our belt, and I think we, we handled them pretty easily, 18, 20 points, something like that, um, you, you have to have things go your way. Um, we wanted to get back close to home. We knew the Duke game, if we got to the Sweet 16, would be uh, closer to home where our fans and a lot of our families could be there because we were out in Sacramento and we wanted our – a lot of our families couldn't come, um, so we wanted to get back closer to home. And, and you have to have a little luck, like I said, go your way. And um, UNC Wilmington was a really good team, but obviously they weren't as talented as USC. You had a, a couple really, really good players and like a Sam Clancy and uh, Steve Logan, who they had a fantastic year. Um, so we, we got lucky playing them in the second round and took care of business. And that's kind of what led us home for the sweet 16. And then, uh, then you play Duke in Lexington, Kentucky. Is that right? And Duke's got six guys who went on to have successful NBA careers. And for maybe younger people listening to this, I mean, Jay Williams, formerly known as Jason Williams, who's the best point guard in the country. Uh, Mike Dunlavy. Uh, Carlos Boozer, Chris Duhon at the at the other guard, Dante Jones off the bench. You had people like Daniel uh, Ewing and Casey Stan- Sanders. He had McDonald's All-Americans coming off the bench. Uh, Duke, I think, was had only lost three games heading into that that game. Um, 
So you're in Lexington, Kentucky. You mentioned so you're closer to home. More of the families and the the IU fans can be there. Um, what do you, what do you remember about you know conversations before the game or the approach before that game? Uh, I knew that our main goal. We knew how talented they were. They hadn't lost a game in like two months or something crazy. But we knew in any tournament game, if you could, if we can just keep it close momentum's going to be on our side because everybody wants to see them lose, you know? So we just wanted to guard them the best we could and really, and got, and even with all that said, got off to a horrible start. We were down 17 points. Um, but again, it came into halftime. I think we cut it to 13 at half something, but we were still down double digits and it was just another one. It was just the mentality of the guys we had on our team. Like, look, if we're going to lose, we're going to go down fighting and, we're going to outwork them in the second half no matter what happens. And let's get back to getting it inside to, to J.J. and do what we do best because we had gotten away from that a little bit. So falling back on the identity of our team and then just the overall mentality and work ethic I think is what allowed us to get back in that game. And then we just started playing them neck and neck the beginning of the second half and then when we made it the run and cut it to three and one and then ended up tying the game with a minute to go um you know as almost looking back on it to have that much momentum it, it's hard for a team that when you're up 17 points and you get come back on and you're the number one team to stop that momentum and they obviously couldn't with the crowd that we had and, and everything was just going right. But I think we created a lot of that with our work ethic and, and just outworking them to every loose ball. So I did go back and watch a lot of that game on YouTube last night. And what I forgot about it is, so you play a very efficient game, but you only had three field goal attempts. You had seven assists, a bunch of rebounds and the team, you know, most of the time when teams come back fast in college basketball today, you know, it's become such a perimeter oriented game. That's a three, but you guys came back. And again, like you mentioned earlier, shot selection. I mean, you guys were attacking the basket and just taking really good shots. And I forgot all about that. Yeah, we knew we couldn't get it all back at once. That's something coach Davis was saying, just keep playing the way we play on offense. And, and Duke plays such a pressure defense and getting up on you that you can drive around them and get to the basket, especially that team. And that's what we tried to do um, in the second half. But yeah, I, I, the main thing I remember is just getting two quick fouls and then getting my third foul in the first half and having to sit out basically most of the first half, which was frustrating. But um, yeah, lucky I was able to play in the second half and be a part part of the team and help help them in that comeback for sure so um and then you got revenge on kent state i for, see i forgot about that that's why this was great because i i remember duke and then i remember obviously the final four game against oklahoma but you get revenge on kent state that must have been somewhat gratifying yeah and we always say that was the perfect team to play after you know getting so high after a duke win um you know almost everybody on that team was there the year before uh, when Kent State upset us in the first round. So to play them for a chance to go to the Final Four, you know, we knew they were a really, really good team. Their guards were really good. They had Antonio Gates, who obviously everybody knows is a fantastic athlete, um, who ended up being a Hall of Fame football player. Yeah. Um, but, 
yeah, that was the perfect team for us. So we were obviously ready to play that game, and it showed with how well we shot the ball and the the start that we got off to in that game. Then, um, you know, people forget, I think, how good that Oklahoma team was with Hollis Price and Aaron McGee. Again, the something I found in the research, Aaron McGee played for a year at Vincennes College. I'd, or Vincennes University before he transferred into Oklahoma in Indiana. I had no idea. Um, just he was a great post player, and uh, that that game was really cool in terms of again, um, you know, the team goes down early and then fights back and and you know wins by by nine points. Um, this would have been, I mean, so what? You're in the Georgia Dome. This would have been, I mean, the biggest stage of your career to date, right? Yeah, I mean that that playing in that final four and that atmosphere um obviously pre-covid where you could have a packed house and you'll never forget that as a as a college kid and I'll never forget this just kind of shows that you get into the game and you're so into it you know the atmosphere is different than you ever um have been in but we won that first game and we were the first game so we got to go out there and watch a little bit of the uh, second game, which was Maryland and Kansas, obviously. And Jared Odell kind of looked over at me and he goes, good Lord, is, were there this many people here when we were playing? Cause you just, when you finally sat down in a little section as a fan, um, just watching the other teams, you don't really take it all in when you're on the court. But I think that just shows, you know, a lot of our play, we were so focused when the game started. Um, but to your point, that atmosphere was was unbelievable that I wish every kid could experience, but we're lucky that we got to experience it. And you really shut down Oklahoma's guards. I mean, I again, I didn't watch the whole game. I was just flipping through it on YouTube, and you really took they, – they, they couldn't do anything from the perimeter, which is pretty cool. Yeah, that Oklahoma was one of the most physical teams we played. They really tried to grind it out against you and just out-physical you and out-work you. And then they had guards that could really, really shoot the ball. And Fife did a, a fantastic job on Hollis Price. Um, and we really just wanted to make uh, – we had really good defenders inside with Jeffries, Newton, Odell, Leach, obviously – um, so making those bigs go one-on-one and then just really out physical in them as much as we could, like we had a lot of other teams. And I think down the stretch, Oklahoma just, they hadn't played a team as physical as we were playing at that time. And that helped us. So again, you know, there, um, another Maryland team that like the Duke team was loaded with future NBA players. And, um, I know, I know for IU fans, it, it was, um, you know, it was too, you guys were definitely the, uh, there was so much national momentum behind you, but I feel like even though you didn't win, it's almost like you did just because of the, the, the road that was there, the road that you took and the, and, you know, beating Duke and everything like that. Um, do you remember, was there, was there any temptation after the season to kind of take the foot off the gas? Um, you, you came back as pretty much the clear leader of that team with, uh, Jared Jeffries and Dane Fife and others leaving, um, what, what was it like, you know, the, you know, right, like right after the championship as you approached your, your senior year? Uh, well, it took a while to get over that loss, to be honest, just because we were so, so close to your dream and we were up with eight minutes to go in the game. And, and I'll never forget, it was about two weeks after that, you know, Coach Trelor just sat down with me and said, you know, you, no team has ever at Indiana has ever been to two straight Final Fours. 
So that's kind of what I was thinking about all year is trying to get back there, doing everything we could to get back there. It obviously didn't work out, but um, just that. And then, you know, I really thought the whole summer about just playing Maryland. We knew towards the end of the summer that we were going to play them again in the uh, Big Ten ACC Challenge, it just kind of as a rematch. So that gave us a game to really look forward to that helped us really prepare for the season, I know, for me and like Kyle Hornsby and Jeff Newton, players like that that were coming back. Well, then, um, you know, you, you had a really good senior year. Um, really, I mean, my opinion, just, but, you know, really emerging as the, as the leader of that team are there. Um, and I know I, I really, I really want to ask you about, um, I, and you've been incredibly generous with your time, so I don't, I don't want to jump the gun, but I want to ask you about kind of, uh, you know, your biggest, your biggest takeaways and how you apply them to your, your business and leadership today. But so I don't want to, I don't want to gloss over that senior year because just from a wins and losses perspective, it was a, it was a successful year. Um, you know, you guys ran into, in, skip into the NCAA tournament, you run into a really good pit team, um, and eliminated in the second round, but it still was a good, you know, a good IU team that returned a lot of people from the, the, the previous year. What are things that you'll remember, um, specifically about your senior year at IU? Um, I think, you know, we had a successful year, but it, it could have been a lot better. Um, you know, we, we had, you know, we, again, when you, when we talk about identity and kind of everybody moving in the right direction, uh, we didn't have the same chemistry we did the year before. Um, you know, we had individual goals that, you know, on certain players that got in the way of, of a overall team goal, um, you know, which, which can always help. But then again, that was valuable lessons for me moving forward because as the leader of the team, I was unable. And one of my biggest regrets is just not to be able to turn that around and get all, the whole team going in one direction uh, towards the end of the season, we got off to a really good start. I think we were ranked in the top five at one point. And then, you know, kind of, kind of went downhill a little bit after that. So, you know, I learned, you know, just as a leader, as, as we correlate this to the business world is, is, you know, it takes time to be a really good leader. You have to build really good relationships with everybody on your team. Um, and, I'll never forget this quote just because I, I think Peyton Manning said it at an event I was at, but he just said leadership isn't a title or a position. And that's always stuck with me, you know, just if because you're the president or CEO of a, of a corporation doesn't mean everybody's automatically going to look to you as a leader. You have to earn that through relationships and respect. And that's the same as being on a team just because you're the point guard or a quarterback doesn't mean you can come in and just start barking orders. No, you have to earn the respect and get the respect of everybody that you know what you're doing uh, moving forward. Um, and that's something that's always stuck with me. And I try to correlate to the business world that I, I think you have to have really good relationships to be able to uh, get the most out of people. And I, uh, you know, it's funny. I feel like I know your career pretty well. And then there were things that I learned approaching this conversation. Um, immediately after graduation, you played for a year professionally in Germany. Yeah. So I actually played two years. I played years. in the, yeah, the CBA in Rockford, Illinois. And yep. then I went to Germany yep. after that. So, 
You know, a lot of yeah, a, a, it, a lot of guys that you I know friends of yours, guys you played with, have had long careers in Europe. Was that something that you considered after you know the year year in the CBA and year in Germany? Well, I knew right out of college I wanted to play, um, and I wanted to have no regrets. So I wanted to go overseas after being there for a little bit. I knew. Um, I didn't want to be somebody that was over there 10, 12 years. You know, I, I probably could have had the opportunity to play in different countries and, and do that. But I, at that point I wanted to get into coaching and be closer to friends and family um, that were back home. And so that's when I decided uh, to get out of playing. I knew I wasn't going to make the NBA. So uh, having a full-time career in Europe just wasn't something I wanted to do at the time. And, but again, looking back on it, just having no regrets, I'm glad I did that because I tried CBA, I tried Europe, I tried everything, knew what it was all about, and had fun doing it. Definitely, I'm, there's not a day that goes by I don't, I'm not glad I did that, or you know, the coaching stops I made in, in college basketball. Um, but it definitely has led me to where I am now, which is most important, and that's to be honest with you, just family, my kids, and having my weekends free, and 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 being, I knew once I got into coaching, um, I didn't want to have to move my family every four or five years like these coaches have yeah. to now, and um, you know, so it, every every one of my experiences and different leadership experiences that I've had, I, I has definitely helped me. In, in my position I'm in now and moving forward in the business world. But you get that on top of, you know, you get to be a part of a team through a corporation, but also uh, have the family time that I think is most important. Absolutely. Yeah, because you did several years at University of Louisiana Monroe as an assistant in a D1 program. Um, and I know that's, I mean, I know that's, um, I mean, it's really a labor of love, right? I mean, I guess, I guess from the outside, you look at, um, like just in the last uh, 48 hours, it's like Micah Shrewsbury was named as the, um, uh, head coach at Penn state. I don't know Micah, but I know his father, who's been a great mentor to me and a lot of people. And I know how, how much Micah sacrificed as an assistant, you know what I mean? To now, and he's in his early forties, you know what I mean? To get this opportunity. And it's like, um, uh, I guess I guess where I'm going is it's like you you got you got several years um, exposure to that world had some success and I mean it's pretty what pretty much the through your mid to your late 20s into your early 30s that you kind of you you made a decision is that accurate? Yeah, and I I enjoyed basketball and coaching and you know the one thing I miss the most is just being a part of a team in a locker room. I think that that's the biggest part, you know that's the one thing you can't really emulate in the, in the business world. I mean, you can, you're a part of a team, but not just that one moment where you're going out there to compete for two hours in a, in a game setting. Um, but yeah, there, there's not a day that goes by. I knew when I got out of coaching and moved home and, um, you know, I'll never forget telling my dad, look, I'm coming home. I'm going to get into some type of business and sales and I don't have a job, but I promise I'll have one in two weeks. And I did and just kind of, you know, got to be around family and friends and just, you know, it obviously worked, worked out just getting into the insurance world and, and working my way up like I have is, is definitely because of the leadership and, and teams I've been a part of my yeah. whole life, for sure. So you're one of the leaders, obviously, of the AAA Corporation in uh, central Indiana. And I also appreciate, you know, insurance is being disrupted by tech, so it's changing constantly. 
Um, you know, I guess, you know, one, one question is what are the, what are the most obvious, um, lessons from, you know, playing at a really high level and coaching, you know, division one that are, that are the most applicable to your, uh, you know, the team environment and the people that you manage, you know, in a competitive industry. I I really think it's just all industries, not just, uh, insurance, but, you know, if you get into the mindset and and it's so easy to do, especially in the pandemic and COVID world that we live now, everybody has so many other things on their mind and rightfully so, but the ones that are most successful can block that out on a daily basis. And, you know, I tell my agents all the time, if, if you take an hour off a day, it, you don't think it's a big deal that it's just an hour. And it's just like in basketball or another sport. If you take one practice off a week, you know, you're looking at, you know, like I like going back to the court board, you take an hour off a day, that ends up to be five hours a week. And, and over, you know, you're looking at a, a little over right around 250 hours you've taken off for the whole year just because you're making that one hour a day a habit. Um, so building those daily habits and having that motivation to block everything else out that's around you because everybody's going to have adversity and things that's going on in their personal life or even in the corporation that, you know, changes that you don't agree with or things that are going on within the organization. If you can just block that out and put your best foot forward, I think that's what makes people successful. Do you find that sports is, let me go back, especially in today's world, a lot of people have a natural fear of confrontation. And I don't like dealing with confrontation or dealing with conflict, but I noticed that people who have had a lot of success in sports have, have been given a lot of um, experience. It's almost like deep, like depersonalizing the conflict, you know, cause it's like, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. It's like when you're playing on a successful team, you got conflict every minute, every other minute, you know? Yeah. And I think it's just the way you communicate that to people. I mean, I don't necessarily think just bad mouthing or telling somebody what they're doing wrong nonstop is productive at all. But if you can get them, again, to respect you and get respect where you're coming from and communicate it to them the right way to show you that you are there to help them and you are there to get them better, uh, it doesn't come across as conflict and conflict, and it com- can come across as motivation. And, yeah. and I think that's part of what leadership is, is being able to communicate the right way instead of just being a dictator and getting up and demanding, you know, just because you're in a certain position or a title, like I said before, uh, it, you got to earn the respect first, but then that allows you to communicate and motivate after that. Yeah. And I noticed too, you know, with the, with the generations, and generational changes, there are some differences. And I'm not one of these people who, who's like got these sweeping generalizations about millennials or Gen Z's, Tom, but you do notice trends. And I do notice it's like my, I've, it's been cognizant. I've been very cognizant, especially during COVID of the fact that like I have to flex and I have to evolve, you know, to, to meet the needs of the team. Is that something that's, that's um, top of mind for you? And are there parallels to sports? Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, one of the first things I think you have to do with your employees is understand what makes them tick. And what I mean by that is, is when you go in and you set goals with different individuals, different individuals are motivated different ways. You know, some people want to work this year to, to take their kids to Disneyland or one just wants to get through, you know, that people are motivated 
by different things in their personal life. And you got to figure out what those things are. You know, some people don't want praise in a big group. Some people only, you know, you don't want to be singled out, even if it is praise. And, you know, you got to just learn these things about your people and what motivates them and what makes them successful because everybody has a different personality. Um, and that goes with prospecting as well, kind of figuring that out when you're trying to get a sale on what's, what it is the person, the client that you're talking to is looking for, um, and going that route. Do you think, um, this, in terms of evolving, do you think Knight would have evolved in the, in, if he had been given another 10 years? Cause that's, that's one thing. And, and again, I don't want to get into these barroom debates that can go on for hours and hours and hours with no point, but I do notice that Knight would flex his styles depending on, or certain things, depending on the personnel that he had. And I wonder if he could have made it much longer given, you know, what we're talking about, generational changes, kids are on, you know, social media is such a huge factor these days. Man, I, I think a lot of the old-time coaches would struggle today in the world we live in. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, but I do think, just like anything else, you don't know until you're put in that situation. And I think you do adapt to, to certain situations because I know Coach Knight, he would get on a lot of players that he knew could handle it. Um, you know, and, you know, to say that he would adapt into today's world, I think it's tough to tough to say yes to. Yeah. Um, but, and, and that's part of the reason why I'm not coaching. I, I don't think I could adapt to a lot, especially in the high school kids and the way parents are these days just to, uh, adapt to, to some of those situations. But I think you have to, in, in a lot of different situations to, you know, get the most out of it. But for, as far as coach Knight, I think he did start to adapt a little bit. I heard he was a little bit calmer when I was there considering what, how he was back in the nineties and eighties and seventies, obviously. Um, but that, that's hard to say. It does seem like part of, part of leadership in 2021, just in general. And I was just thinking about this as you were talking about managing teams, it's like, um, managing one's ego it seems like has never been more important and you almost look at whether it's the modern leader and the modern coach what a lot of them have in common is this kind of calm stoic you know even if they're high energy people they're not just about their own ego um yeah. and just command they're not just they're not just about command and control if that makes sense yeah 100 percent. i mean if, if if you're in a leadership position and you're worried about your own ego and everybody doing stuff your, your way, it's not going to be successful. Um, you have to put that on the back burner. And sometimes, you know, sometimes people underneath you or, or that you're trying to motivate just need encouragement, need to hear certain things that they are doing well. Um, and I, and I think that goes back to just adapting, like we talked about before, you know, you have different personalities everywhere. So you can't just have one different, um, personality, uh, leadership style and be successful with everybody. Yeah. And I like, I mean, what you said about just your daily habits and sort of the compounding effort of those daily habits that, and you know, that it reminds me of what your high school coach told you when he benched you, you know what I mean? The thing about, you know, just look, check, you know, really, I mean, you know, it makes me think about, okay, really examining my own daily habits and maybe like you said, an hour today, but that compounds over the course of a year. And again, it reminds me of like when you were, when you were like 16, what your coach told you. Yeah, exactly. And it goes back to the, in that fear of stopping or failure. And, 
you know, you have certain salespeople that are successful because their activity never stops. And that's when, you know, say they're at, you know, their goal is 25,000 in sales in a month and they're at 32 with a week left to go. Some people would stop and relax and then their whole next month is, is ruined. Yeah. Well, you know, our top salespeople, you know, they, day in, day out, they're constantly going and that's what makes them successful. And I don't think it, it I don't, I think it's more of people want to be successful. Everybody wants to be successful, but those people have built those daily habits and a feel fear of failure that they have. I know I use that a lot, but I love it. Um, just to, to, to push themselves on a daily basis. Yeah. That fighting through fear. Um, yeah. Well, you've been, Hey, you've been more than generous with your time. I've got a few really quick hit questions I'd love to ask, and then I'll let you have the rest of your day if that's okay. All right. Okay. One is, um, okay. So, you know, and this is important for leadership. You, one thing that I will, I will take with me from this conversation is how much your, um, Indiana basketball teams with Knight and Mike Davis were about attention to detail. So what you said about contest every shot, you know, and then discipline on good shots and things like that. When you watch a basketball game, what are little things that you look that you see or you look for that the casual fan like me wouldn't see? Uh, I would say the way guards fight through screens and the way they go through screens. Because the really, really good coaches, they recognize that. And, and what I mean is, is if you're coming off a stagger screen, which for people that don't know, it's just a double screen. Say somebody's cut from the corner. If they try to run through the lane to get there, the next time a really good coach is just going to stop that guard and, and turn and rescreen and have a wide open shot. Oh, so wow. um, just the way the defense is guarding certain things and the adjustments that the coaches makes, whether it's how they're guarding a ball screen, how, you know, um, and I think to be honest with you, that the best I've ever seen at making those adjustments was Brad Stevens. If you ever watched his teams play or even at Boston now, he has so many set plays that gets his kit, his guys wide open shots. And then if you ever see him call a timeout and they have the ball underneath the basket or on the side, he is, he is reacting to what he's seen and how they're guarding certain things and gets a wide open shot almost every time out of yeah. a, out of a timeout. I love and it. I think that those are the kind of adjustments I watch for. I love um, it. So for, for, for the benefit of some of my West coast family members and, you know, chamber of commerce, people in other cities listening to this biggest difference about basketball in Indiana compared to other typical States that you would want people to know. I would just say the way you grow up with it, 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 you know, after being in Louisiana, it's similar to the way football is there. But your high school towns, I mean, I think it's gone down a little bit now, but the way I grew up, our heroes growing up were the high school kids that we were going. Everybody went to the games, um, and you were the crowds of the high schools. You know, you you play in front of at least, you know, three to 5,000 people every night, and, and just, you know, it, it really is life or death for a, a lot of these communities, especially when they get in the tournament. Love it. And then, okay, so you mentioned, I'm, I'm thinking of not like candidates to replace Archie Miller, who aren't the most obvious people, the biggest national names. You've already thrown out Michael Lewis. Is there anybody else you find yourself, you know, thinking about or talking about in the last, you know, day or two that, that the, the media, uh, national media have been talking about the next IU coach? 
Well, we've talked about the four former players. Yep. Um, and Brad Stevens. If there's one other guy that I've got to know in coaching, um, and I was actually set to me and him were gonna be assistants together at Texas Tech uh, under Billy Gillespie was Chris Beard, and he ended up oh wow uh, being the head coach there eventually. But I've kept in touch with him, and I think. He does a fantastic job. Absolutely. He's got, the, he's got the mindset and defense. I mean, he turned that program around from where they were, um, you know, after they were down for a couple of years. So I think he's a really good one. And then another guy that I've always kept my eye on is just because he went to the same prep school I did the year after me, and that's Wes Miller. He was, I'm not saying necessarily for IU, but he's been the head coach at UNC Greensboro. Um, he's won three or four championships there. That's where my, uh, my good friend, Mike Roberts, who is an assistant with IU this year was an assistant with him the last four or five years. And I think he, he'll be either this year or next year, get a really high, you know, a, a power five job. Um, but he was at the prep school. He was a walk on played at uh, North Carolina and you watch his teams play. I forget who he plays in the turn. I think he plays Florida state in the tournament this weekend. Uh, but you watch his team play, and they're a really, really good, well-coached team. Cool. Well, th- this is, I, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I've learned a lot of things, Tom. I, I look forward to having you um, speak uh, you know, to a, a general business audience sometime because there's just a lot of great stuff here, uh, just life lessons and leadership lessons. So I hope uh, you and your family enjoy this, uh, Indiana- sorry, this NCAA tournament that's all in Indianapolis. And, uh, I, yeah, I just, I just really appreciate your time. Hey, with four year old twins, even though we don't get to go to the games, I get to sit down and watch all this on TV all weekend. It. Right. I love it. <laughs> and you giving me, I'm going to watch, I'm going to watch fighting through screens and see if I come up with, uh, you know, any new, any new insights. So, um, anyway, exactly. Tom Coverdale, one of the IU greats. I so appreciate your time. Thanks a lot for, uh, having a conversation. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Talk to you later.